The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the host. All of the topics discussed are researched by the host and can be found by anyone on the internet. I enjoy true crime and learning about the history behind these crimes. This podcast is made for enjoyment purposes and I do not claim to be a professional in the field. Murder A is a true crime podcast and some of the topics discussed may be offensive to some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Murder A. I am your host, Elise Pearson. Uh, I'm gonna start a little differently this week. I'm gonna talk about a couple things that I wanted to um, just briefly mention. I mean, I can't really uh, ask for your opinion, obviously, but um, a few things that have happened over this past weekend. Uh, Just really, um, like, I keep thinking about it, and it's just, um, obviously, it it bothers a lot of people. It bothers me, but... um, the mass shootings they're just becoming so frequent and it's just so i I don't i don't even know the right the right word to say how i really even feel about it because it's just it's obviously so awful um and the amount of people that have lost their lives because somebody just has a different view than than the rest of us or or whatever their reason may be. I just think it's it's so crazy and it's just happening so often and I just I really think that the US needs to obviously they need to do something. It's not getting any better and it's only getting worse. I saw um a picture on Instagram and it was a picture of different countries around the world. And I think I I think there was a list of like 25 different countries and it showed that this was the 215th day of 2019 and there has been in the world I think there was obviously not every country was listed but there was like 18 countries who have had zero mass shootings there was a few countries I think we were one of them Canada Mexico was one of them New Zealand was one of them And I think the Netherlands was another one that has had one mass shooting. And the U.S. has had 249 mass shootings this year alone. There's only been 215 days this year. So for there to have been 249 mass shootings, it's like more than than one a day, which is just insane. And I lived in the U.S. um, for six months. Uh, just at the end of last year. In the time that I was there, I don't recall a mass shooting that was, like, like really big, that got national attention, like the ones that happened over the weekend. But um, there were shootings, and they, they weren't mass shootings. However, there were still shootings nonetheless. And there was a specific day that I remember. There was two shootings within, like, 30 minutes of each other, And both of them were within a mile of where I was at the time. One person was murdered, and the other one was just, like, somebody, I don't know, off his meds and shot the back of a vehicle out. But, um, the fact that there was a murder less than a mile away from me just, like, scared me. It 
it scared me so much and I'm not saying that it would never happen here or it hasn't happened here because I'm sure there have been lots of murders that happen here and I'm sure there's lots that I probably don't even know about but it just so happened that this person was known by the family who I was staying with and I had actually met the guy who was murdered like two weeks before it happened. So it was just really, really scary, really, um, this whole, the whole situation was really scary, but I just think that, um, if guns weren't so accessible to the public, especially, like, young people or people who are known to have mental illnesses, I think that there could be a lot of, um, there could be a lot less shootings. Obviously, it's working in countries like Canada, because we don't have mass shootings like they do in the U.S. And we, you can't just go and buy a gun at Walmart. It's just not like that. We don't even sell guns at Walmart. I think maybe we might sell BB guns. And I think, actually, I remember I was like 23 and I was buying a BB gun with my brother. And I got ID'd and I just didn't have my ID on me at the time because we were, we were away, like somewhere far away and I just didn't have it whatever and they wouldn't let me buy the BB gun like it's a BB gun I mean yes they can they can injure people whatever but it's a BB gun it's not gonna kill anybody so I mean everything is different here than it is in the US but I just think that things need to change and they need to change now I don't know what people are waiting for but it's just getting really out of hand and I just wanted to talk about that. I just thought it was um, something that was important that I wanted to to share my opinion on. And I don't think that I'm alone in, in my opinion. I think a lot of people think the same way as me. And uh, I just think it's crazy. But anywho, I want to say first off that the information provided during this episode was found on Wikipedia, Murderpedia, and the OttawaCitizen.com and other few other small like um, article-based websites and all the information was collected and researched by myself. That also goes for my past two episodes before. Um, the websites may be a slightly different. Obviously, the Ottawa Citizen is not one of them, but um, Wikipedia and Murderpedia are my two go-to websites, definitely, and they have plenty of information. There are also little articles um, or even blogs. Reddit has a lot of things, but definitely all of the stuff that I talk about is available online and it is not written specifically by me. I definitely do put things into my own words, but all this information is available online. Um, so this is episode number three. And I'm really excited to talk about this case because it was very prolific when it happened and I think it's very, very important um, what happened in this case. Uh, this is a crime that took place in Canada in 1910. It caused a lot of controversy and many people stood up for the killer. It is a sad story about domestic violence, but I also believe it to be a story of heroism to some point. Yes, someone was murdered, and I will never agree that murder is okay. However, this woman was brutally abused by the man whom she loved and had five children with. She literally felt like she had no other option. This is the true story of Angelina Napolitano. And I apologize if I say her name wrong. 
at all. I'm not Italian, so I don't know how to properly pronounce it, but I will do my very best. I actually never heard of this case, but when I came across it, it immediately stood out to me as something really um, important. There are plenty of cases that almost everyone knows about and are popular worldwide, but this one was so significant back in 1910 when the murder took place that I thought it was really important to shed more light on it. So Angelina Napolitano was born in either 1882 or 1883, it's a little bit um, unknown, there isn't an exact date, in a small town just outside of Naples, Italy. There are several articles about her, but the year of her birth isn't confirmed, and her family name is also unknown. She married Pietro Napolitano when she was 16 years old, and the young couple emigrated to America shortly after the turn of the century. They lived in a New York... They lived in... In New York City, not in a New York City. They lived in New York City for seven years and moved to Canada in 1909. First, they moved to um, a town called Thessalon, Ontario, and then to Sault Ste. Marie, where there was a sizable Italian immigrant community. The couple had four children together. Pietro found work as a laborer, but struggled to earn enough money to support his family. To cope, he took to drinking and pressuring his wife to help out through prostitution. Despite Angelina's repeated refusals, Pietro kept insisting and became increasingly violent, threatening her and abusing her daily. In November 1910, after Pietro abruptly left town, Napolitano took in a, a boarder. Believing that her husband had abandoned the family, she launched an affair with the man. Weeks later, when Pietro returned, the border fled. Pietro again demanded his wife turn to prostitution, um, but she told him she didn't want him as a husband. He flew into a rage and stabbed her nine times with a pocket knife in the shoulder, arms, chest, and face. Angelina spent the next three weeks in hospital and was permanently disfigured. Pietro was arrested and pleaded guilty to wounding his wife with the intent to maim. The judge in his case accepted that he was provoked by his wife's affair and handed him a suspended sentence, reasoning it was better to keep the family's breadwinner out of prison than to land him behind bars, which in my opinion is pathetic. But obviously this was 1910 and things were a lot different back then, but my gosh, like, it shouldn't matter if he's upset. You don't stab someone nine times. <laughs> On April 16, 1911, which was Easter Sunday, the arguing reached a breaking point. Pietro issued an ultimatum to Angelina. Bring home money for the family by prostituting or be hurt or worse, killed. He then went upstairs to take a nap. Poor guy. This would prove to be fatal. While he slept, Angelina made a decision that would seal her fate and cement her fame. She went out to the woodshed and grabbed an axe. She then crept upstairs to the bedroom where Pietro slept and swiftly landed four axe blows to his head and neck, killing him instantly. She was six months pregnant with her fifth child. Um, there were a couple, excuse me, there were a couple articles that said she was five months, a couple that said she was seven, and I just figured since, there, there was also some that said she was six, so obviously, 
it was a, a guess whether she was five to seven months pregnant, so six was uh, middle ground, so that's what I stuck to. After she finished the deed, she returned the axe to the woodshed and then went inside to cuddle with her youngest child. She then called a neighbor to confess what she had done. She felt more relief than remorse at killing the man who had subjected her to years of violence, threats, and humiliation. Her exact words to her neighbor were, I just killed a pig. Angelina's trial began on May 8, 1911. Her responsibility for the act was never in question. She admitted to killing Pietro. Unfortunately for Angelina, the judge would stifle her court-appointed lawyer, Uriah McFadden, anytime he tried to introduce evidence to explain her actions, how she feared her husband after his attack in November. The judge stated, If anybody injured six months ago could give that as, just, as a justification or excuse for slaying a person, it would be anarchy complete. I mean, I guess he's a little bit right, but I don't know. That's a little ridiculous. The testimony lasted three hours. Napolitano was the only defense witness and told the jury in her broken English that she killed her husband to protect her virtue and her children. The judge claimed that Pietro was asleep at the time of his murder and presented no immediate threat to his wife, who was at perfect liberty to leave. As it turns out, the legal principle of immediate threat would be a key issue in the 1990 court case, R v. Lavallee, that ultimately established battered wife syndrome as a defense in Canada, which is huge. It meant women who fought back and killed their abusers could be acquitted of the crime. The judge assured the jury that Napolitano, Napolitano if found guilty, would not be hanged until well after she delivered her baby. Oh, how nice. What a great guy. The jurors did not take long to decide the case. They quickly returned a guilty verdict while recommending that the judge impose a lenient sentence. Lenient sentence. The judge, however, ignored the recommendation and ordered the 28-year-old Napolitano to be hanged. He set the execution date for August 9, 1911. Regularly, during the last 150 years, Canadians have been riveted by criminal trials that became part of the national conversation. Dennis Oland, Robert Picton, Paul Bernardo, and Robert Latimer, to name a few. Few, though, have led to the international outcry that followed Napolitano's conviction. Which, again, is huge. An American wire service correspondent, Honor D. Fanning, interviewed Napolitano in prison and wrote about her knitting baby clothes for her unborn, unborn child. Fanning also tracked down Napolitano's children and had one write a letter to his imprisoned mother. This caused a media firestorm of sympathy for Angelina. Her seven-year-old son Michael's letter read, I hope you will come home to us soon. Amelia, his sister, takes good care of us, but we all want you. We are lonesome every night without you. Petitions demanding clemency poured in from across Canada, the US and Europe. Women's groups, suffragettes, and church organizations spearheaded the campaign, which enlisted political support from a handful of U.S. governors, including Tennessee Governor Ben W. Hooper, who said, If I have correctly understood the facts, the woman ought not to be hanged. Dr. Alexander Alto of Ohio offered to take Napolitano's place on the gallows, 
It would only be fair to Mrs. Napolitano for a man to give his life for her, inasmuch as her life is in peril on account of a man's persecution of her, and because men condemned her, he said. Which is amazing, incredible that somebody would even think to do that, but that just goes to show how much effect this had on the people of the world, and how much how much controversy controversy it was causing. Federal Justice Minister Sir Alan Bristol Aylesworth was taken aback by the outpouring support for Napolitano, an admitted murderess who chopped the head of a man to pieces while he was asleep. Those were the Federal Justice Minister's words himself. More than 100,000 people added their names to petitions and letters calling for clemency. The Liberal government finally bowed to the pressure on July 14, 1911, and commuted Napolitano's sentence to life imprisonment. Napolitano gave birth in prison, but her infant died two weeks later, and it is unclear why the baby died, but awful either way. One could only imagine that it was probably due to the amount of stress that she was under. I mean, she did just murder her husband and then get sentenced to be executed only for it to be retracted and now she has to serve life in prison um so i mean yeah she was probably pretty stressed she was paroled in late december 1922 after serving 11 years napolitano worked as a live-in maid for the nickel family in kingston before disappearing from the public record a few years later I found a post on Reddit that stated all of Napolitano's children were taken from her and it was years later when one of her daughters actually came to see her. The reunion was joyful and Angelina was to go live with her daughter until she passed away in 1932 at only 49 years old. I'm not 100% sure of what she died from at only 49, but it was in the early 1900s, so... I mean, it could have been a number of things. It, it could have even been similar to why her baby died. It could have just been stress from all the years. Or, who knows, stress from being in an institution. I, I, I don't know. It's hard to really say. Um, in 2003, independent film director Sergio Navarretta began researching Angelina's life for a documentary, but expanded the project into a feature film once they realized how dramatic the facts were. The film, Looking for Angelina, was shot in two weeks in 2004 in Sault Ste. Marie on a very small budget of only $250,000. The writers took inspiration from Canino's play, The Angelina Project. The film Looking for Angelina included a domestic violence awareness campaign component of the film. The film's producers often screened the movie before a panel discussion of domestic violence experts or put on, put on screenings to raise money for organizations. So there were a couple um, productions done about the story of Angelina. I wasn't able to watch any of them. I, I couldn't really find a good place to watch the the film looking for Angelina. I I was interested in watching it, but I mean, I read a lot of her story, so I kind of know what happened, but it would have been nice to see um what the film's adaptation of her story was, especially since they had people f who who worked in domestic violence awareness 
watching to make sure that everything was was done according to how it actually happened. And that is the insane story of Angelina Napolitano and basically her life and what she went through and how awful it was and how she literally felt like she had no other option than to kill her husband who was abusing her for so long. It's unfortunate that she had to suffer and that the only way out for her was to kill him. It takes a lot for a person to do something like that, so I just... I think she, I do think she was a hero. I think she stood up for what what was right and she wasn't about to go prostitute her body for money to support her family because she knew that that was wrong and she wasn't gonna be abused anymore by her husband and she was trying to save her children, which I think is, is amazing. So that that is the story and I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to doing another story next week. I'm not 100% sure what I'm going to do, but I do have an email address where people can email me with suggestions for topics that they want me to talk about. I I can't guarantee that I will talk about everything exactly when it's suggested to me, but I will do my very best and I will definitely research whatever is suggested because if there's something that I don't know about or haven't heard about, I'm always interested in learning. So the email address is murdera at yahoo.com. Thank you everyone for listening and credit once again for the music behind my podcast goes to Kevin McLeod from freepd.com. Goodbye. <laughs>